Oops. Uh, welcome to the summertime. Welcome to the summer sermon series. My name is Greg. I'm married to Sarah. She's my only wife, unlike Abraham, but uh, same name, Sarah, as Abraham. I have three little boys, Benjamin, Henry, Jude, the dude, two reds and a blonde. It's good. It's good. Um, why Abe to Dave? Abe to Dave. Abe to Dave. Why Abe to Dave? Well, I was at Whole Foods with Jason one time a few months ago, and he was eating healthy food because he had just come from CrossFit, and I was eating whatever I wanted because I live a life of freedom. And, um, <laughs> and we're talking about the summer sermon series, and we've been trying to send Jason and Lindsay on sabbatical for a while. We almost got him to do it this summer, but it's going to be next summer. And um, so in the meantime, we're trying to give just them a little bit of a break. Uh, Jason is like Cal Ripken Jr. He's up every week. Broken wrist, broken pinky, sprained ankle. He is hitting. And this summer we're pulling in um, the t- more of the teaching team to hold more. So you're going to get Barry Bonds, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, Mark McGuire, um, Griffey. I'm neither of those guys. I'm more like... Um, Wow, I just, spent, I just spent all my baseball people, so <laughs> skip. Um, but Jason will be up every third, so he'll get just two weeks off every month to just relax. And just um, when you're always going, it's hard. And, when, and then when you're a guest preacher and you're like, you've been thinking about it for months, you've been like thinking about this one silly sermon for like months, and you come and you're like, <gasps> And everybody's like, oh my God. And then Jason comes back and he's like, every day, every day I do this. And everybody's like, good sermon, man. Yeah, Grace, we got it. And so anyway, he gets a break. Um, you get to hear from bozos like me and some other people. So Abe to Dave, we're talking about it. We're going to cover like 1,200 years of history in 10 weeks, half of the Old Testament, half of the Old Testament, not textually, but like thematically and then in a character study where we linger with the people who were crucial in exposing and unveiling the reality of God's nature and his character to us. Um, So that's how we're going to do it. So think um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings and Chronicles and Psalms, all that, 10 weeks. But it's going to be so awesome. It's going to be really awesome. Um, This morning, what am I going to do this morning? No, we are going to move person to person, person to person as a way of making our, th- our way through all of that. We're not going to go like, let's read through the book of Judges. We're going to hit a judge. Uh, we're not going like, uh, to cover all of Genesis, all 50 chapters of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis for the next four weeks with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Uh, so Genesis would be an awesome thing to dip into if you want to in your Devo time. It would be really rewarding. We're going to see um, God work through a chosen family the family of Abraham, that family is going to be, grow and become a people group, a chosen nation. Out of that chosen nation, um, a chosen one is going to emerge, and his work invites and makes room for us to be a chosen people of God. So that's where you're kind of seeing some of the language around that. Um, it's going to be a fun sampling for us of the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph. Okay. So you know when you get a Lego set? Who just said that? Thank you. <laughs> right, John? When you get a Lego set, all the colors are right. 
So if you put it together, anybody can walk into your room and be like, oh, cop car. Oh, Apache helicopter. Oh, school bus series. Cool. I didn't know they did that. Cool. School bus. Later, you break your stuff down, you put it all into a bin, and then kids like come and play and they build something, and it's like a hodgepodge of colors. If they're going to type A, they kind of try to match the colors, but it's not going to be like it was at first. That's what happens when you have a sermon series with lots of different people popping in. It can feel like, I think that's a school bus, and they're like, no, it's a space RV. And you're like, I got to see it now, but... So as a way of trying to keep us unified, we kind of, the teaching team kind of put together a paragraph that we're all trying to read at the start to keep us like, hey, we're all batting the same direction, even though we have different ways of teaching, we're going to linger on different things, et cetera, et cetera. So here it is. Um, this summer, as you may or may not know, we're in a series called Aid to Dave, Abraham to King David. What that means is we're doing a fun, simple survey of the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, ending with King David, each week looking at a different character who played a major role in the unveiling story of God's pursuit of mankind. There was a chosen family that grew and became a chosen nation, evolved and wondrously became a chosen people, of which we as followers of Jesus are now a part. The Old Testament is a family history. It's God's salvation history, and it's the record of his pursuit of mankind. Knowing the Old Testament builds a foundation for helping us to understand the New Testament, and it gives us a context for appreciating grace. Not to mention, these are the scriptures Jesus read and studied. The Old Testament, the 39 books, that was the complete Bible that he had. We're going to talk about that. Everything he spoke about, taught about, and did was informed and directed by his understanding and his fulfillment of these texts. All the the ways where no one's ever talked about God this way. His source material was the Old Testament all of it, and it was enough. Paul's source material for talking about righteousness by faith, the end of circumcision, the gift of the Holy Spirit as our inheritance as sons and daughters, etc., etc., was all seated in the Old Testament. Um, So we hope to make you curious, the teaching team, we hope to make you curious this summer that you might do some digging on your own. We want to help connect the old to the new, and we want to unveil the places where Jesus is hidden in the text. In each of these stories and accounts, we hope to show here is where Jesus is. Great. A word on the Old Testament. Real quick, a word on the Old Testament before we jump in. Our Bible is an anthology or a bookshelf or a library of books. Our Bible is 66 books. The first part of that, though, is the Old Testament, 39. 39 books. It's the complete Bible that Jesus had studied and loved. Um, and what we need to know is those 39, are broke, it's, they're broken into three groups and they're a unified collection. Um, and a Jewish person, or Jesus, would tell us more about that, and he would tell us that they are broken into, like, when Jesus goes in Nazareth, when he is going to um, start his ministry after coming out of the wilderness, he goes to a cabinet in the synagogue, opens it, and reaches for the scroll of Isaiah. He pulls it out of a specific section in the cabinet. This cabinet was broken into three parts, and that's the whole Old Testament. They had an acronym that they called the Old Testament, the Tanakh. T-N-K, like the NFL is an acronym. So this is their NFL, Tanakh, different, but the same. Okay, so he opens this thing. There's the T section, the N section, and the K section. T, Torah. First five books of the Bible, Pentateuch. Pentagon, Pentateuch, five books, Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was the teaching or the law. Middle part, Nevi'im, the prophets. So when Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, he's talking about all of it. They're thinking, oh yeah, the synagogue cabinet. All of that is love God, love your neighbor? Oh, wow. Third part, ketubim, which is the writings. T-N-K, 
Tanakh. N-F-L. You got it. Okay, great. That's the Old Testament. Um, it was, when I say it was Jesus' complete Bible, I mean he was so saturated in this and he loved it so much that you can't help but see it in the Gospels. So Jesus, as a 12-year-old, misses out on his vacation because he's so absorbed in conversations about the Old Testament with scribes and teachers in, um, in the temple in Jerusalem that his parents are like, where have you been? He's like, here. And they are marveling at his knowledge of what has already been written. Not new stuff, but his knowledge and his understanding of what has actually always been there. It was very good. Um, when he deals with Satan toe-to-toe, face-to-face, exhausted after 40 days of fasting, he doesn't use his own words, which are the words of God, because he's God. He quotes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, worship God and him only. Uh, and then, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Boom, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. He loved the text. When he's dying on a cross, his first words in the dying account and his last words in the dying account are, my God, my God, why have you forgiven me? It is finished. And he breathed his last and lifted up his spirit. The book ends to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has done it. Or it is finished. He is showing us a place where we can jump back in and go, Oh, he has just captured for me the whole experience of the cross in a prophetic psalm written by King David. Jesus is called the son of David. David was called a man after God's own heart. And the scriptures are full of that kind of stuff. And we're going to try and unveil some of this stuff and just toss stuff out as we go through these 10 weeks, half the Old Testament, 1,200 years, 10 people um, this summer. I think it's going to be really awesome. Okay? Everything Paul had, everything Paul had to describe and and teach that the righteousness of God comes by faith, not by works, was in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit being our inheritance as sons and daughters, he pulls from the Old Testament. Everything. So it's the source material for all the good of the New Testament. Did you know that at any nursery in Fort Collins right now, if you go to buy a fruit tree... You look at all the trees at a nursery, you can stoop down at the bottom of the trunk, you're going to see a knuckle. That's because the fruit t- tree was grafted, it was cut off of its own root system, and it was grafted onto a far more robust root system that will better ensure survival and fruit bearing and longevity in our climate. That is the reality of the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament is a robust, gritty, strong root system that the New Covenant, that the New Testament grows and fruits off of. That one's free. That's free. Um, okay. When you go into the Old Testament, here are some word pictures, okay? When you go into the Old Testament, it can be like A, walking into the woods, okay? Some of us have varying levels of comfort with walking into the woods. Depending on what time of day it is, your comfort level is going to change with walking into the woods. And it's because the woods are kind of wild. You don't know what you're going to come into. You could have a standoff with a mountain lion. You could walk through some poison oak, etc., etc. The woods can be scary. And sometimes when you go into the Old Testament, you can bump into something that is scary or strange. And that might impact your willingness to be comfortable there or to go back there again. 
In 2007, my neighbor, his friend, went for a walk in the woods in Grand Lake. 2007, March 26. He takes a digital Olympus camera with him into the woods. It is early in the morning. He builds, he builds custom homes up there in Grand Lake, which is 88 miles from here. What I'm telling you is 88 miles from here. Lose your mind. Not yet. Just a second. He goes into the woods. He stops, and he's scanning. He's like looking through his viewfinder at this section of woods where there's like some rocks and some snow and some trees and stuff. And he sees something through his viewfinder, looks up, takes a picture. Okay? Let's just put the picture up for a second. Just let your eyes, just let your eyes adjust to this picture for a second. I just want you to just glance at it. Like at first glance, you might be like, whatever. This is like nothing. This is like a picture of the woods. Like totally normal. First glance at the Old Testament, you might peruse it and go, yeah, whatever. It's a story. Oh, it's so much more than a story, my friends. This picture is so real to my neighbor that he wouldn't let me tell you his name. He would not send it to me. He would airdrop it to me. And I will not tell him how I got it to Andrew Spada because of this story. Okay, let's zoom in a little bit on this picture. We're coming in. Okay, let's go in a little more. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We're coming in on something. This is a real photograph. I have the whole stamp from a digital. It's so far. It doesn't matter. This was a reality for someone standing in the woods in 07, March 26. I don't know if it's a reality for me yet, Paul, and, and everybody else in here who's like, think, will you put your sunglasses on to see it? Give me a break. And so, but this is a picture that my buddy took. This is like the Old Testament, okay? Here's the rest of the story. He tries to switch his camera over to video, but because it's so cold, what do batteries do in the cold? They die. His camera dies. Oh, my God. Oh, what? All right. So I think what we're seeing, I don't know, something like in this, whatever. And so he sees a thing that he would say is seven to nine feet tall, walk briskly at what he would call a running a running speed, but at a walk pace for this thing into the woods away from him. He is frozen in fear, turns and runs away, okay? Gets out, this is 07, gets out, takes his camera, takes the memory card out, puts it in his computer, downloads the picture to his computer, uploads the picture to Facebook, which was new-ish at the time, and posts it. His brothers, he has three brothers, they do not believe him. They go, you're a psychopath, it was just some weirdo in a ghillie suit in the woods or whatever. He goes, it wasn't that. Blah, 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 blah. Goes to work the next day. He builds log homes with his family. But he still is at home at the time. Two unmarked cars come to his house. They, the forest department goes to his front door, knocks on the door. Your son posted a picture yesterday from the forest service area here. We need the camera and the memory card. The mom thinks he's in trouble, doesn't know anything about this, takes the camera and the memory card, gives it to them. He comes home, mom, what did you do? He's like, but I downloaded it to my computer. <laughs> His brothers are now like, what? And so a week later they go, let's drive back up there. Let's just drive back up there. A week later they drive back up to the same road where he had parked. The road is closed four miles away from the trailhead and all of the trails all around this area are closed and there are personnel monitoring to keep you from going through talking about routine trail maintenance. 88 miles from here, just over the hump as they would say. Now, this is what going into the Old Testament can be like sometimes. <laughs> you don't know what you just came across, but you didn't like it. You can't prove it. You can't. Everybody might think you're weird for being there, for what you're saying, but you saw something. You read something. You're like, 
No. That's one picture. You can pull up. All right, another picture. Sometimes you're in the Old Testament and you are sitting on gold and you don't even know it. Sometimes you're sitting on something sweet and you don't even know it because you didn't, you didn't know to look. You didn't know where to look. It's closer. It's right under your fingertips. It's right under your bottom and you don't even know that it's there. So just take your hands, reach under your chair, and just do a little feel ski. I'm dead serious. Right now, take your hands, reach under your chair. Kids, do this. Trust me. What? What? Take your hands, reach under your chair. If there's open space, cover that space. Cover that space. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there's a, that, not that, not that. Hey, it should feel packaged. It should not feel like it's used gum. Listen, in the Old Testament, there's a passage of scripture that says, train up a child in the way he or she should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from the way. That phrase is actually give them a taste for. Give them a taste for. And parents used to take honey and when they were teaching through the Torah, they would smear a little bit of honey right behind their little kid's teeth so that they were associating the word of God is sweet. The word of God is sweet. Who needs a thing for you didn't? Okay, great. All right. So, Old Testament, in review, can be scarier than you thought it was going to be. But don't worry about that. It can also be sweeter than you knew and you're sitting on nuggets. But unless somebody tells you how to get to it, you'll miss it. We're going to try and do that this summer. Yetis and ring pops, don't forget. Okay. Everybody ready to jump in? Ready? Okay, here we go. Genesis, first book of the Old Testament. The first three words that you would say them in Hebrew would be bereshit, which is in the beginning. So that's what a Jewish person or a rabbi or a Hebrew person or Jesus would have known it as. In the Greek, it's the word origins. For us, we know it as Genesis. It's the beginnings of so many things, of God being disclosed to us, creation, the firmament, man, woman, civilization, culture, language, sin, sex, nakedness, trees, water, you name it, it's there. It's in Genesis. And Genesis opens with a poem that beautifully and, and linguistically describes creation. It's not a scientific document. It's a poem. And it unveils to us this dance of God creating things and then filling things that he made with other things and separating things apart from each other. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the people. So you meet Adam and Eve. They've got a choice, and they're in a perfect setting. The book of Genesis will also give us Petri dishes for three different settings where we get to watch the frailty of man, mankind, humanity, play out. A perfect setting, Eden. A setting where you rely on only your own conscience, Eden to Noah. 
Only your own conscience dictates right and wrong. And then good rule, the patriarchs. Good rule, the patriarchs. In each place we watch humanity fumble, fall, and need rescue. Okay? Adam and Eve, you know the deal. They have some babies. First babies born. Cain and Abel. This is the first place sin is mentioned in all of the Bible, and it's personified, almost like it sounds like an animal. Cain is nursing a grudge against his brother Abel. God comes and meets with him and goes, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. You must master it. I love that introduction of sin because it doesn't set up sin to be quite as big as like a Darth Vader and the, and the force, like the, the bad force. It's more like a Rottweiler or a Doberman that's like waiting and someone's like, heads up, when you go through that gate, it's going to be on. And I'm like, let's go. I will kill a dog today. Like that's, so like that's, I like that. You might not like it. You might want to like whistle and make friends. That's not me. I'm like, okay, so I can master this thing. Let's go. I love that picture of sin. Is that the perfect picture of sin? No, it's just the first naming of it. So Cain and Abel, but we know what happens. Cain kills his brother Abel, beats the snot out of him a field, kills him, and then Cain is exiled. The first two sons murdered and cast away. They have another baby, Seth. The lineage continues through Seth. You go down, bop, 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 Noah. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. In between Seth and Noah, you've got heavy hitters like Enoch, who lived 365 years and then was no more because he just went to be with God. He just kind of pulled like an Elijah moment where it's like, gone. You got Methuselah, who's the oldest guy who ever lived. You got Noah. You have the flood. The Noah account, by the way, this is this, Adam to Noah, is Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 functions in the whole Bible like an introduction. To a book. You're watching God's pursuit of humanity. But, but verse chapter 12 through 50 takes us watching God's pursuit of a family that he will bless humanity through. Okay? Noah, the flood, God watches everybody dealing with their own conscience. My conscience is law. How's that going for you? God sees that every inclination of the human heart is only towards evil all the time. That's the quote. And he is grieved. But Noah. Flood, the washing of the world, or a baptism of earth. Eight in all are saved and a restart. So you go some more generations. You go, he has three sons, Ham, Japheth, and, and uh, Shem. The genealogy goes through Shem, but something happens when they get out of the ark that is strange. We don't really know what it is. It's possible that Ham castrated his dad. Not getting into it. But it's, so, it's such a big deal that when Noah wakes up after drinking some wine and he realizes what Ham has done, he curses Ham's son. So if you're a grandpa in here, think about what your son would have to do to you that would make you so angry that you speak a curse over your grandson named Canaan, which is where the Canaanites come from which is the group that's exterminated by the Israelites when they come back in from Egypt. Just chew on that. That's all you got right there. Shem. Boom, Shem. Bing, bang, boom to Abram. 
His name starts as Abram, goes to Abraham. We'll talk about it. How many generations do you think there were from Shem to Abram? Ten. You nailed it. Does that mean something? Yes. We're not talking about it because I don't know what it means, but it means something. Um, okay. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go boom, meta arc of scripture. Then I'm going to zoom in a little bit. I'm going to go um, the storyline arc of Abraham's life, and then I'm going to pluck a piece out, and we're going to talk about God from the piece. Double rainbow. Big picture. Smaller picture. Totally beautiful. You're going to love it, I hope. Okay, here we go. Abraham. I'm going to fire through this. Abraham and Sarai have Isaac, the promised child. Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God always calls himself in the Old Testament the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he makes a specific promise to Abraham that he reaffirms to the son and the grandson. That's it. So he always refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One, two, three. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons through four women. 12 sons, four women. Those 12 sons, of which one of them is Joseph... Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So it's like the 12 tribes of Greg. The 12 tribes of Israel was actually Jacob's new name. And the 12 tribes were his sons. Joseph is where we're going to follow. Joseph continues on through there. And Joseph is the link of a family going into a nation people group. You know, and I'm not going to tell you the story, because I can't. Joseph. Egypt, the family moves down to Egypt because of famine, and we pull away for a little while, and Exodus opens with several hundred years have passed by, and the, and the Israelite, Israelite people, who were the Hebrews, I'll talk about why they're called the Hebrews, have become millions. And Moses is drawn up out of the Nile by an Egyptian princess, and so his name is Moshe, drawn up. And he rescues God's people. We're going to spend three sermons on Moses. His first 40 years, his middle 40 years, and his last 40 years. It's going to be great. We're not talking about it right now. Moses. He leads the people, does the stuff, 40 years in the wandering, whatever. And then from the top of Mount Nebo, not getting to go into the promised land, he hands it off to Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, which is Jesus. Joshua, Jesus are the exact same name. He hands it off to Joshua, and Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Ah, oh, the fulfillment of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob promise. The people are now a nation. Kings are going to come from them. Milk and honey, we're doing it. Joshua leads them in. They take possession of the land. Mediterranean, Red Sea, Persian Gulf, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, Israel. They take possession of the land. They are ruled by judges for a period of time. So think Samson, think Deborah, Barak, Gideon, and Samuel, to name a few. Paul's going to talk more about that later. Um, Samuel is the last judge over Israel because they go, we want a king like all of our neighbors. Comparison is the thief of joy. We want a king. So he anoints Saul as king. King Saul does an okay job. Then he anoints King David. David does a good job, all things considered, but you know, he's got some blips on the radar. Um, King David has, has an affair with Bathsheba, their son is Solomon, who's the next king over unified Israel. And Solomon takes 300 wives and 700 concubines and blows the thing to pieces. Civil war happens when the handoff goes to his sons. And Israel goes through a civil war and breaks. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. 
Prophets are talking to them about it. It's a total disaster. Israel in the north is invaded by Assyria and assimilated, and prophets are talking about that. Later, Judah in the south is invaded by Babylon. Think Daniel, and they are decimated. Daniel is carried off. Babylonians hand off to the Persians, who hands off to the Medes, etc. Prophets are in this time. You're thinking Daniel kind of there, like Esther, Queen Esther, all that's happening in there. A quiet time, 400 years of silence. And then Zechariah is in the temple, married to Elizabeth, and an angel of the Lord shows up to him and goes, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John. He will be the forerunner of the Christ. And a little teenage girl named Mary in Nazareth has a similar experience. You feel that? That's the meta arc of the movement to get us to Jesus. Okay, so now we come back to Abram. Here we go. All right. Abraham's 75 years old when we meet him, and we meet him in Genesis chapter 12. 75 years old. His brother has died. He has two brothers, though. Nahor, Haran, Abraham. Haran, his brother, has died. His brother had a son. He took his son under his wing, Lot, his nephew. Abraham and Lot. He also takes Sarai as his wife. Likely, he knows that she is barren, but we can't prove it. Can't prove it. God comes and speaks to him in Genesis chapter 12 and goes, leave your father's house, your country, your people, your family, and go to a land I will show you. So think about all your identity markers. Who am I? I'm this, I'm that. And if God goes, leave all that, I'm going to redefine you. And the world's going to be blessed through you. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 12, because I think it's, it's worth us hearing it, because this is the foundation for Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. We all just kind of disagree on how it plays out from here. But all the Abrahamic religions hold true to here. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Which was, oh, I got to tell you. Nope, not yet. Okay. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left. Abraham goes west. This is Ur, which is also, think about Babylon. This is where his family was from, but they had moved to here. Um, God speaks to him here. What I just read happens here. This place is called Haran. Not that it matters. Go down to here. He camps at some oak trees in a place called Shechem because my man loves some shade, okay? It's the Middle East. If you've ever been there, it's terrible without the shade. It's, it's terrible without the shade. I mean, it's not terrible. That's not true. That's a messed up thing I'm saying, but, you know, you need some shade. Camps here with some oak trees, which, by the way, is a really cool thing to look at in the Old Testament. This is one of those nuggets that's hidden in there. If you ever want to on your own, just look at who moves east and who moves west, in scripture, and what kind of people they end up becoming, and what kind of trees you find people sitting under or sitting near when you meet them in the text. Without failure, it will talk to you about the person's character. Abraham and his oak trees, Deborah and her palm tree, Saul and his pomegranate tree. When Jesus meets Nathan, do you remember what he says? Nathan, I saw you while you were still sitting under the fig tree. 
And then where do we find Jesus? What kind of tree do we associate with Jesus? A cross, most likely made of their version of pine, which is the easiest wood to get for them, olive wood. Anyway, you can take this. That's, it's, oh, it's so good. So good. Okay. Oak trees, but there's a famine, and so he keeps pushing on to Egypt with Sarai, with Lot. Now, what we got to know about Sarai or Sarah is she is a smoke show. She is, she is gorgeous. She is, she is 10 years younger than him, so she's 65 years old, but that doesn't seem to matter whatsoever to anyone. Um, I joked in the first service that she's like Suzanne Summers, and then I like couldn't think of another lady. So it just was only, Suzanne Summers was like my only. <laughs> I think that's still, I'm going to let it be that. So um, she's so pretty, and there's no real law at the time. It's not like it's like, oh, cool. Oh, you guys are married. Like, I respect that, dude. Like, cool, man. It's like the only law was like, oh, I guess we, you, you just kill the husband if you want his wife. Like, that was a law. Don't leave him alive. And so he says to her way in advance, hey, look, sweetie. Princess, that's what her, name's, her name means, princess. Princess, um, you are a smoke show. You light the tires up, the whole car is gone in smoke, smoke show. I need, what we need to do is, it would be awesome if you could say wherever we go that you're my sister, because we will both literally live if you do that. But if you don't do that, and somebody murders me, we're all, it's bad for everyone. So I know this is not the best deal for you, but like, it's like this crazy thing. People make fun of Abraham for being a coward. It's hard to measure somebody's decisions back then with our values and standards of today, but that's what he does. So they go to Egypt because of a famine. They roll into Egypt, and so they go in, <laughs> and all of Pharaoh's sons, who are the princes of Egypt, are like, and they go to Pharaoh, and they're like, bro, dad, bro, dad, God, dad, God. This woman, who is unique, just came, and we highly suggest you including her in your harem. And he's like, I, I love it. And so he goes to Abraham and Sarah. He's like, what's the story? They're like, yeah, uh, she's my sister. I'm his brother, I guess. And he's like, sick. You are coming into my household as my wife. The text is it's unclear how far, like, we just don't know what happened, but we definitely know he takes her into his house as his wife. Abraham gets rich off of this trade. His girl is living in Pharaoh's house. He starts getting sheep, camels, goats, silver, men servants, maid servants, like all the stuff, like boats, like think about boats nowadays, and like multiple homes. That's what he's getting. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's house is afflicted with plagues because Sarah is barren. And God has her back. And if you mess with Sarah, you get, you get the hammer. You just get the hammer. And so his whole house is shook. They have like plagues and stuff happening. They're all like, what is going on? His wives are like, oh, I think that. And then they kind of, they nail, they're like, bro, she's this guy's wife. And he's like, what? They bring Abraham in. And it's like, what happened? He's like, look, she's fine. Were you not going to murder me? And they're like, I don't know. It's like, just, they just talk it out. Sarah goes back to Abraham, and Pharaoh's like, get out of Egypt. Get out of here. And they leave wealthy, wealthy, because of Sarah. Who knows what happened to her? They move back up here. This is Hebron. This is why Abraham and the people of God are called the Hebrews, 
because they were from Hebron. And you know what was here? You know what was here? Great shade trees, more oak trees in Hebron. Because Abraham knows how to do it right in the Middle East. Okay. I'm going to punch through some stuff because I, you know, I got to. At this point in time, Lot and Abraham are wealthy and they have a bunch of stuff. And they, their herdsmen are getting in fights because there's not enough like, grazing area and water to sustain all of their stuff now. So Abraham, in a move that is classic of him, they go to an overlook and Lot, who is the senior, and Abraham, who is the elder, Abraham... Um, Let's Lot choose where he wants to go. He goes, Lot, look out over all the land, and you choose what you think is best, and I will go the other direction from you. Of course, Lot chooses to go east, and Abraham chooses to go west. Lot sees the valley of, jo- of the Jordan, which, it, which Scripture literally says was well watered like the Garden of Eden. So you can't fault him for it. He's like, I mean, if I'm choosing... I'm going to go there. And so he moves to this side of the Dead Sea, right here, which is where Sodom and Gomorrah was. He moves in here. It's beautiful, fertile, whatever. It was. Um, He moves there, and Abraham puts a body of water between them and lives in Hebron. And they're good to go. At that time, the people who live here go, we're tired of being under the rule of these four kings. And they overthrow. These four kings come down, dominate them. And then as they're leaving, a sole survivor goes goes to Abram in Hebron and goes, bro, your nephew, and, and by the way, everyone just got dominated. And Abraham calls out from his own household, 318 dudes, chases these four kings that just led a victorious military campaign over five kings, chases these four kings up here, and at night splits his forces and dominates them. Dominates them, decimates them. Takes all the loot, all the people, plus Lot, which was his only real goal, and his sons and stuff, and brings them back. On the way back down, he stops at a place called Salem, which became Jerusalem. He stops at a place called Salem. Salem means peace. And he meets the king of Salem, the king of peace, whose name is Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He meets a guy who is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Who do you think that might have been? Not getting into it? Read the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament. But He meets Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him. And to be sure, the greater always blesses the lesser. And he cuts a tenth out of all the stuff and gives it to him, which is the first tithe. Then he meets the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're like, whatever, bro, you can keep all the stuff, just give us our people. And he goes, I'm not touching any of your stuff. I don't want a single thing from you. He goes, so you will never be able to say, we made Abraham rich. So he gives all the stuff back. He goes back down here to his, to his oak tree in Hebron, and the Lord shows up to him and goes, I will be your very great reward. He doesn't say this, but it's implied. You didn't take a reward. I will be your very great reward. Awesome. Awesome. Um, he, refer, he reaffirms the promise that I'm going to make you a great nation, that you're going to have a son, all this kind of stuff. Sarah, it seems, gets tired of waiting to get pregnant, and she goes, hey, look, I've got this maidservant named Hagar from Egypt. You should have sex with her and have a child through her, which was a Middle Eastern kind of Egyptian thing that was mentioned where, like, a woman would give birth on another lady's lap, and then you would keep the baby. Messed up. That's the way it went, and I won't use the S word anymore because there's a bunch of kids in here. So, um, and if my kids were here, I would have thought about that. Sorry about that. Um, he knew her. 
as the King James would say. Um, and now I'm distracted. Um, she has a baby. And, but before she has the baby, nope, I'm, that's what I'm preaching on. We're going to keep moving. She has a baby. We're going to come back to it. Um, she runs away. She comes back. Where am I at? Really got distracted there. The little boy that Hagar bears for Abraham is named Ishmael. Ishma listens El God. God listens. Ishmael. When he's 14 years old and Sarah is now pregnant because God showed up two times before. One time to talk to Abraham about how he was going to give him a son and Abraham laughs like in God's face. And God goes, and I want you to name him Laughter. That's exactly how it plays out. I'm going to give you a son. Abraham's 99 years old. I'm going to give you a son. He goes, <laughs> he like starts laughing. And God goes, and I want you to name him Laughter, which is what Isaac means. And then God goes down into Sodom and Gomorrah, and that whole episode happens. And Lot is rescued, but not his wife, because you look back. You can read it on your own. Then a year later, God comes and speaks that same promise again. I'm going to give you a baby. Sarah's going to get pregnant. She's in a tent. She laughs. And God's like, why did she laugh? She's like, I didn't laugh. He's like, you did laugh. She's like, okay. And you're going to name him Laughter. And then they have a son and they name him Laughter. Son of Laughter is a great book by Frederick Buechner that brings the whole thing to life. But I love that little moment. When they are weaning Isaac, Ishmael is like joking or something and Sarah like loses it. She gets super upset and she goes, get this slave woman and that child of the slave woman out of here. They will not have any share in the inheritance which is super intense because Abraham loved Ishmael. And the only reason I think he sends him away is because God goes, do it. I'm going to take care of them. So they send him away. Later, God comes back and he goes, I want you to now offer your only son to me. I'll show you the place. Abraham turns a one-day journey into a three-day journey, which is how we know he was wrestling with his own obedience Child sacrifice was semi-common in that area, which is why he doesn't balk at it. They march up a mountain, and Isaac goes, where's the lamb, Dad? What are we going to sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And his dad goes, the Lord will provide the lamb, my son. But he goes through the deed, ties him up, puts him on a pile of sticks, is right about to, to do it, and an angel calls out, don't. They see a ram tied in the thicket. They slaughter that instead, and Abraham says, you are the God who provides, and in this place, Mount Moriah, it will be provided. Mount Moriah, the peak of Mount Moriah, is the most hotly contested place on planet Earth right now. Mount Moriah, you fast forward to Solomon, is where Solomon built the Temple Mount with a little piece. Think about building a football field on top of horse tooth. And you're going to leave a little bit of horse tooth poking through the football field, but you bring up the ground everywhere else around it to make it level. That's the Temple Mount in modern-day Jerusalem where the Dome of the Rock sits, which used to be where the Holy of Holies was. The Islamic religion claims it was Ishmael that was offered there, so they claim the peak. Jews and Christians claim it was Isaac that was offered there, and they claim the peak. The most hotly contested spot on the center point of our planet, the Middle East, is there. Fascinating. But he doesn't do it. And so Isaac lives, which is great news for us. So Abraham gets super old and then sends a servant back up to Haran where his brother lives to get a relative to be his son's wife. He doesn't want to intermarry with the Canaanites. 
Remember? Rebecca and Isaac. Sarah dies. He buries her in a cave. He takes another wife named Keturah. They have six kids. Abraham dies. He has eight kids in all. One of them is the one that was like supposed to be the one. That's the arc of Abraham's story. Now I want to zoom in on one moment. There are so many, but I want to zoom in on one moment that I think uniquely discloses to us the character and the nature of God in a way that I think pulses with the reality of Jesus. I think he saw this and it was fodder for him to be able to disclose to us facts about God that have always been there but that we had missed. So, what we're going to look at is when Sarah gives Abraham her slave to be his wife. Her, they picked up Hagar. After the famine, they hit Egypt. Sarah is in the Pharaoh's house. We don't know when they pick up Hagar, but she's Egyptian, and her name means forsaken or stranger. They pick her up, and they take her with them, along with a bunch of other servants and stuff. They had 318 people when they went to go fight those kings, so they got a whole squad. But she is specifically Sarah's maidservant. I want to read this text to you, and then we're going to unpack it. Here we go. Ready? This is Genesis chapter 15. And what we just covered was Genesis 12 through 25. We did it. We did it. Okay. Here's what it says. Now Sarai because their names haven't been changed yet. Their names get changed in the next chapter. Now Sarai, who was Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep, go and know my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. Commentators always joke about how fast he agrees. It's like, go and see. He's like, I'm in. I'm in. They joke about it. It's not clear, but they joke about it. Um, So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, so he's now 85 years old. After he'd been living in 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Hagar does not have a say in this. He slept with her and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Young woman Hagar looks to 75-year-old Sarai and is like, I despise you. Lots of reasons. Then Sarai says to Abram, this is a hilarious, I love it. My wife was here in the first service and I joked about it because we, we fight like this. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. Then she drops this. Listen to this. Think about if you're in a marriage fight and you drop this. This is your closing sentence. May the Lord judge between me and you. Because <laughs> if I'm Abraham, I'm like, well, maybe. I'm like, and I just was joking with my wife. I was like, what if we fought like that? I'm like, I, I water the flowers and whatever, and may the Lord judge. I would never say that. because. <laughs> and then he goes, classic Abraham. He goes, look, your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you want. He basically goes, I don't care, which kind of feels like a dereliction of duty, if I'm honest. And you see that sometimes with Abraham, but it's like, I can't. I mean, I'm not going to call him out. Like, he's Abraham, okay? But I am going to call, I mean, call him out a little bit. Okay. Um, Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. The Bible is full of sentences that engulf much more than what they say. The Israelites were slaves for 400 years. 
in Egypt. Sarai mistreated Hagar. We don't know about all that, but she fled. And she heads in the direction of home. Hagar heads back towards Egypt. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur, which is on the way to Egypt. And he said, listen to the way this messenger speaks. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It reminds me so much of when one of my little guys is upset and I take a knee and I go, hey, 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 tell me what happened. Calm down. Where have you come from? Where are you going? She's, she's pregnant but has not given birth yet. I am running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants, I will so multiply your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Does that sound like a promise that we have heard before to someone else? Totally. It sounds exactly like what God said to Abraham, and now he's meeting this woman. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child, and you will have a son, which my mind goes immediately to Nazareth. You shall name him Ishmael, Ishmael, for the Lord has listened to your afflictions. He has heard of your misery, of your suffering. God is so unknown at this point in, in, in history, in mankind, that even when you fast forward hundreds of years from here to Moses, and Moses is speaking with him at the burning bush, Moses says, who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? What name is it that you go by? So we fast forward, to, I mean, we rewind to this moment, and he goes, I am the God who hears you. Name your son, God hears To a nobody. Her name is Stranger Forsaken. She is not a big part of the story. If anything, you could argue she's a road bump. And God stoops low to hear her whole story. Doesn't your mind fast forward to Jesus and the woman who grabs the, head, the edge of his cloak? A nobody. And he turns and hears her whole story while Jairus is waiting. God's character is rarely revealed to us when we're on vacation and everything's fine. More often than not, God discloses himself to us in the moments of suffering and agony, hurt and pain. He draws near and he whispers a truth, a reality, an unveiling part of who he is to us. And it becomes a black pearl treasure for us in one of our darkest moments. I know that Jesus saw this, and it informed how he spoke about the least of these, the immigrant, um, the foreigner. He's heard of your misery. This guy that you're going to have, your son, he'll be a wild donkey of a man, <laughs> which is, this is the, this is the start of um, the religion of Islam, uh, which Muhammad started in the year 600. But he will be a wild donkey, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. I don't know if that's a blessing, but it's like a statement. It's like, a, 
He's not going to be a slave. I'll tell you that. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. So God goes, here's who I am. And she goes, he goes, I'm the God who hears you. She goes, you are the God who sees me. El Roy. It's a name that sticks for the rest of the text. El Roy. You are the God who sees me. He goes, I am the God who hears you. And she goes, you are the God who sees me. I have seen the one who sees me. The next person, I mean, like, this is fascinating that she has this kind of encounter with God. It's fascinating to us for so many reasons that this is the heart of God, not for the elite and the only, but for the forsaken stranger, cast aside, road bump reality of the human journey. I will meet you. I hear you. I see you. That's why the well that's there has been given the name, the well of the living one who sees me, which is a mouthful. Every time you're like, which well are we going to meet at? Let's meet at the well of the living one who sees me. Sick. Which, that's not the well of the, it's the other one. Um, so Hagar goes back. She bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Which means when this slave girl, who has no clout in this house, comes back with this story, they listen to her. Or at least Abram does. And he honors her story, her account, and he agrees and names his firstborn son what she said, which is a huge deal, if you can imagine. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 86 years old, Ishmael is born. He loves Ishmael. Here's why this morning when I woke up, I did not know if I was going to preach on Hagar or if I was going to preach on Isaac being offered on the top of Mount Moriah because both, they both punch. But I remembered um, as I was sitting there and I was like, Lord, where do you want me to go in this? This is such a unique place of God. This is maybe, maybe more than anywhere else so far in Scripture. God has not made himself known to us in this way where he kneels down with a woman crying in the wilderness and goes, where are you coming from and where are you going? What's wrong? Go back. I will cover you and bless you. I have heard all about it. And she goes, you have seen me. And I remembered my mom, after my dad died, she has a six-year-old me, a four-year-old my brother, and it was my little sister's first birthday when they told us that my dad had died. He was a fighter pilot. He died um, in the Gulf War conflict. And her... um, agony and loneliness. She didn't need a God who goes, I have forgiven your sins and I send you rain. Just like a distant father who provides for his family but never listens to his kids' tears. What we need, like we fall in love with Jesus because we see him on the cross and we understand all that, but the reason most of, us has, most of us have a personal relationship with him or our personal relationship gets sticky when we realize that he has knelt down near us in our suffering and whispered something small to us in a moment of need, that is when we bloom alive in his presence. It's the little places where God meets us and discloses himself to us that make us robust disciples of Christ. And he does that with this girl who's just, she's from the people who are going to become the enemies of God. And I just love that. And I feel like it pulses with the reality of Jesus 
who discloses God's character to us. Because God was not one way, and then he changed and became another way. God is who he has been, but he buried and hid certain things about himself that we would later understand and would bloom in the light of Christ. But all of the, of the, the seeds and roots of that are here. And I think about my mom not needing a God who saves her sins, but needing a God who goes, and this happened to my mom, stop checking your checkbook. There will be enough. And she stopped for a season. And there was enough. Just like the widow, if you remember in the New Testament, who stops checking how much oil she has. And she has enough bread to make food for her family. These are the moments that reveal to us a God that's not only big and powerful and awesome, but who is near to the frail brokenhearted reality of mankind. Jesus was not called man of giggles or man of tickles or man of laughter. He was called man of sorrows because sorrow and suffering are the greatest common denominator of the human experience in the reality of a broken, sin-soaked world. But he meets us and he gives us hope in our times of need. Whether you are a slave forsaken nobody or a barren hurting Sarai, or an aged trying to figure it out, Abraham, or whatever. He is the God who hears us, and he is the God who sees me. And I love that. Um, can I bring, Spada, would you come up with your team, and I'll give some closing thoughts, then I'll pray for us, and we'll go. Um, one thing to know, um, we're going to have a resource table starting next week out in the lobby. The people who are, who are teaching this summer are going to put the books that we use to inform our study. They're not, they're not scholarly text. They're totally readable stuff that we're going to put out there so that if you want to um, invigorate your time um, in the Word or alongside what you're learning this summer with us, you'll have all that you need to do that. That will start next week. Um, we're going to be in Genesis for the next four weeks, so if you want to check out Genesis, that's where we're going. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we're spending three in Moses. So we covered 12 to 25 today, kind of. Um, I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then I will come back up after these guys are done and give you some closing thoughts. Lord, oh, I am... Um, I am so thankful that you are, you are one who stoops low to me and to the least and to the great in our times of need. You stoop low, you listen, and you whisper a word because you see me and you know me and you meet me where I am. You disclose your character to the least of us and to the greatest because you do not show favoritism. You are kind and gentle and good and you have been. And whether I, whether I ride and walk in the story well or botch it, you rescue and make good. That gives me hope and it helps me to trust you. Lord, we want to know you and love you more. Would you invigorate um, our walk and our study and our time with you this summer as we come back to the foundational elements of who you are? Amen. <laughs>